A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Let's waste no time. We'll get right on with the wrong think. Our program brought to you in part today by Monticello College. Also, HSLAmmo.com and Pure Light LED light bulbs. I have thoughtfully included links to all of these sponsors in the show notes. You can access them at the com. These are show notes for April 15th. April 15th? Oh, oh, oh. sorry. It's tax day, or it's supposed to be. You know, this is the only time, well, except for maybe last year, when I'm actually feeling slightly grateful for COVID. Because last year they pushed the tax filing deadline back, and they did it again this year. And I'm not saying I'm a procrastinator, but I'm saying that uh, it, it, it doesn't get less complicated as time goes on. And I'm not really enjoying figuring out exactly how much I owe Uncle Sugar. I can tell you this, most of that stimmy that found its way into uh, my pocket or into my uh, mailbox is going to be going right back to Uncle Sam to keep Uncle Sam off my back for the money I legitimately made on my own. I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm complaining. Okay, I am. <laughs> I just I just hope I'm complaining with a purpose that, yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of, of tax day. However, we're going to look on the bright side as we start out here. And I, I want to share with you some thoughts from J.D. Tusil, writing for Reason.com. It's titled, Enjoy Tax Day 2021. They just get worse from here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I think he's got a good take. He's got a good grasp of reality, and it's something that we need to pay attention to. We need to uh, acknowledge because somebody's going to have to deal with it at some point. Tax hikes and a growing debt guarantee shared pain in a hobbled economy. So J.D. Tusil says, happy tax day. April 15th is a little less momentous than usual this year because the IRS and many state revenue agencies extended the the deadline for filing tax returns and making payments to accommodate economic troubles caused by the pandemic and lockdowns. Still, those of us accustomed to the usual date can't help but dread the coming of mid-April. And this year, that dread is even more appropriate if you recognize that taxation is theft and anticipate rougher muggings than usual in the years to come, courtesy of the Biden administration's ambitious tax proposals. Jim Tankersley and Emily Cochran for The New York Times noted Democrats have spent the last several years clamoring to raise taxes on corporations and the rich. Now, under President Biden, they have a shot at ushering in the largest federal tax increase since 1942. Oh, no, they they say it like that's a good thing. Now, J.D. Tusil says such a dramatically large tax increase is impressive, but what's even more impressive is that it still isn't enough to cover President Joe Biden's spending plans. Aid suggests his proposals might not be entirely paid for, with some one-time, spend, one-time spending increases offset by increased federal borrowing. In fact, the largest federal tax increase since 1942 is sufficient to cover just a small part of the trillions of dollars in spending already passed and under consideration by the federal government. Reason contributing editor Veronique Derugi 
observed earlier this month, Biden plans to splurge $11 trillion in additional spending over a decade. Meanwhile, his proposed tax hikes are expected to reap $2.1 to $2.8 trillion. In other words, for every 5 to $6 in new spending, $1 will be paid for in new taxes. The rest goes on the nation's credit card. Now, that's a double whammy of pain because there are costs both to higher taxes and to soaring debt. Now, the easiest sell for the administration is a big hike in the corporate tax because seemingly everybody's angry at corporations right now. And, of course, corporations are relatively faceless, easy targets. The president proposed to raise the corporate tax rate from the current 21 percent, which is about middle of the pack among developed countries, to 28 percent, more than triple Switzerland's 8.5 percent and almost twice the 15 percent charged by Canada. Apparently, Canadian provinces and Swiss cantons also impose additional taxes, just like U.S. states. J.D. Tusil says, aware that such a high tax rate might make the United States an unattractive place for companies that, to base themselves, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen advocates a global minimum corporate tax rate that can stop the race to the bottom. Well, of course, imposing the tax would require the cooperation of governments that might benefit more easily by offering an attractive low-tax alternative to Yellen and company. But J.D. Tusil reminds us corporations are just ways of organizing group efforts by human beings, and those people ultimately pay taxes. The Tax Policy Center, a project of the Urban Institute and the Brookings Institution, says the burden is shared among stockholders and unintuitively among a broader group of workers and investors. Now, the Urban's Brookings Tax Policy Center, or TPC, assumes investment returns, dividends, interest, dividends rather, interest, capital gains, etc., bear 80% of the burden, with wages and other labor income carrying the remaining 20%. So tax policy may aim at big, bad corporations, but ultimately it hits retirement investments and paychecks. And by the way, another easy target is the rich, because few people consider themselves in that category until the term is redefined in unexpected ways. And what it means at the moment isn't clear because Biden says, well, his his plan won't raise a penny tax on a family making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. While Jen Psaki, his uh, press secretary, insists the proposal will not raise taxes on any individual or family under the cutoff, which isn't the same thing. Even if most Americans ultimately make less than the magic threshold, a lot more people are in for rougher future muggings from higher income taxes. And even lower spent lower income individuals rather and families will suffer from an economy depressed by higher spending, soaring taxes, growing debt. I mean, it doesn't really sound like the most stable situation, does it? By the way, the Congressional Budget Office or CBO warned last month of the consequences of higher taxes to finance increased government expenditures. It said the general finding is that increasing taxes leads to lower GDP and personal consumption. After 10 years, the level of GDP by 2030 is between 3 and 10% lower than it would be without the increase in expenditures and revenues. Now, the CBO also warned that revenues collected by the federal government from hikes across three possible tax policies affecting income and capital will shrink without adjustment because people will work less, reduce investments, and even leave the labor force in response to the government's increased take. To maintain deficit neutrality, tax rates for all three tax policies must rise over time to offset behavioral responses that result in smaller tax bases. The harder they squeeze us, the more people slip through their fingers.
totally makes sense. Now, those continuing deficits, remember uh, that even the largest federal tax increase since 1942 isn't enough to cover spending plans. Those deficits will add on to a debt that's been accumulating for a federal government that hasn't balanced a budget in 20 years. Even before the spending spree of the past year, federal debt was expected to hit 98% of GDP in 2030. Debt at that level would, quote, dampen economic output, and servicing it would inevitably reduce the income of U.S. households. That's according to the Congressional, Congressional Budget Office. Debt will now be much higher as a share of GDP as a result of trillions of dollars in additional spending with all of the pain that implies. And that pain from the growing national debt will add on to the pain of soaring taxes that are insufficient to offset that debt. It all adds up to a shared experience that just might live up to Biden's call for uniting our nation. Misery loves company, after all. <laughs> J.D. Tusil says, so happy tax day. Get what enjoyment you can from this year's events, because the muggings to come will be a lot rougher. I'm sorry. I, on the one hand, I look, I just have to laugh. I think he has a great way of expressing himself. I think he's actually dead on here. I think he's telling the truth. Okay, so it's not such good news. Kind of sucks. Government wants even more of whatever happiness comes into your life. You know, there's a part in there, too, that, that really makes me stop and wonder, because this has crossed my mind. Would I be willing to make less in order to keep government from getting, uh, quote, unquote, its fair share? You're darn right I would. And that's, you know, if that sounds like a spiteful thing, but it's like, why, why should I help the person? What moral obligation do I have to help my government plunder me? I know some people will say, no, come on, you, you benefit from the blessings of society. Hey, if, if the government actually was representing me, or at least representing my interests or protecting my rights, I might be inclined to say, yes, you know, you're right. There are some blessings that accrue to us, but... Not seeing much of that these days. In fact, you know what I really see is a government that's just standing there with its hand outstretched like like some pimp demanding, where's my money? Where's my money? Don't make me get violent with you. Except at least the pimp doesn't pretend he's doing me a favor, right? He just wants the money. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, there's been some talk about uh, something happening in Afghanistan. And it's, it's interesting to watch the uh, media as well as some of the political talking heads engage in the kind of mental gymnastics that I guess are intended to convince the rest of us that, hey, this was a good thing. The fact that we've had troops in there for the last 20 years. I know it'll be 20 years, I think, come this October. And uh, boy, has it ever made us more free by virtue of the fact that our guys have been at war in Afghanistan. I'm sorry if that sounds really insensitive and uh, and cynical. But really, if you've been paying attention, we're not more free here at home just because 
they have been over there. In fact, we have been fed a big whopper on Afghanistan. And it's crazy to hear, you know, the, the talk about, well, you know, we can't tell the we can't tell the enemy when we're going to pull out of there. They, they still act like they being the foreign policy establishment, uh, Washington, D.C., Foggy Bottom, whatever, uh, you know, the State Department. They want to maintain the illusion that, oh, yes, we can win this. We're going to win this. But you don't win what was going on in Afghanistan. You know why? Because it was never a war. And this isn't just the strict construction constitutionalist in me coming out here. I mean, it would it'd be nice if it was a declared war. But uh, truth be told, the last declared war that we fought was back in the 1940s. Coincidentally, that is the last war that actually was fought to a decisive finish and not left as some open ended police action. Maybe we have troops there. Maybe we don't. Well, can we send in some private contractors and take care of things that way? You get the picture. It's there's a lot of meddling. There's a lot of interventionism going on out there, but uh, very little of it can be traced back to actively defending actual American lives and American interest. Corporate interests. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're helping them. The uh, national security apparatus and its various vendors. Oh, they've had a banner year. Actually, they've had a banner couple of decades thanks to that war on terror. And you may think that, uh, well, you know, if this was true, Brian, the, the media, I'm sure, would tell us, you know, that, that we'd been fibbed to. Really? <laughs> uh, may I remind you of the uh, second Iraq war? You know, the one that started back in 2003. Yeah, where was the media on that? Because I was aware of a few principled voices who were saying, uh, guys, this is not only unjustified, but this is going to harm a lot of innocent people, which it did. I think Caitlin Johnstone's right when she says it's the mass media's job to normalize war and abnormalize peace. It's our job to do the exact opposite. She says every single time a possibility opens up for stepping even an inch back from endless war, there's a New York Times article explaining why the war is actually humanitarian and progressive. And you're seeing some of that right now. I want to turn to Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. And this is his lowdown on the big whopper on Afghanistan. He says in December 2019, the Washington Post published an article detailing many of the lies that U.S. officials have issued throughout their entire war on Afghanistan. And the article was based on a confidential trove of government documents. Perhaps the biggest Whopper was the one emitted by President George W. Bush that's now being repeated by President Biden. Well, the reason Bush launched his war on Afghanistan was because the Taliban regime had knowingly harbored Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Are you ready for this? That was a lie, a flagrant lie. Neither Bush nor any other U.S. official ever provided even a scintilla of evidence that the Taliban regime was somehow complicit in the 9-11 attacks. Now, that's not the same as bin Laden taking credit. The real reason Bush launched his war was over the concept of extradition. Bush demanded that the Taliban regime deliver by bin Laden, bin Laden rather, into the custody of U.S. officials. However, Afghanistan and the U.S. did not have an extradition treaty. Therefore, the Afghan government was under no legal obligation to accede to Bush's demand. 
In fact, I believe they said, show us the proof before we talk about handing him over to you. And even then, the Taliban regime said, look, we're willing to deliver bin Laden to a neutral third party nation for trial. That's because it feared with some justification that bin Laden would end up in the clutches of the U.S. national security establishment where he would be subjected to torture, indefinite detention, assassination, extrajudicial execution or just a kangaroo military tribunal. The only condition that the Taliban imposed for doing this was the the U.S. provide evidence of bin Laden's guilt, much as it would be required to do in a regular extradition proceeding. Well, you know the rest. President Bush declined to do that. He made it clear that his extradition demand for bin Laden was unconditional, and Afghanistan needed to comply with his extradition demand or else be invaded and regime changed. Now, if U.S. officials had evidence that the Taliban regime was complicit in the 9-11 attacks, Does anyone think for a moment they would have been jacking around with an extradition demand? Jacob Hornberger says, not on your life. They would have gone on the attack immediately. Moreover, it's clear that if the Taliban had complied with Bush's unconditional extradition demand, there never would have been a U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, which means Afghanistan wasn't guilty of anything except failing to accede to Bush's extradition command. So today, when Biden says the decades-long war on Afghanistan, on Afghanistan rather, has ensured that Afghanistan will never again serve as a haven for anti-American terrorists, he's being disingenuous. Because there was never any evidence the Taliban regime was complicit in the 9-11 attacks in the first place. By the way, just as, as a matter of testing our memories... I always thought that uh, when the when the Navy SEALs or whoever it was that, that caught up with bin Laden, when when the task force caught up with him and killed him. So we were told I thought that was in Pakistan. Did I hear that wrong? Didn't didn't they uh, capture? Uh, well, didn't they get word that that's where he was? They entered the compound and allegedly killed him. I say allegedly. And I look, I'm sorry. I'm not casting any aspersions on uh, people who are are serving their country in the armed forces. I think they probably signed up with all the right intentions. But the way the government reports this and the the way that it has shaded the truth and kept us from the truth in, in previous things, let's just say, yeah, I'm skeptical that it played out the way they said. Oh, and we buried him at sea. We threw him out of a, out of a helicopter at sea so that no one would ever know, you know, where he actually landed. Okay, it's kind of convenient. It just magically went away, you know, and then we came back from commercials and, you know, the show went on. I'm grateful to see that our troops are going to be coming home from Afghanistan. And I'm I'm grateful because they didn't need to be there in the first place. All of the lives lost, all of the treasure spent, all of the injuries, and I'm talking permanent crippling injuries, blindness, and so forth, that have come as a result of that action have done absolutely nothing to make us safer. It's it's so funny to hear some of the uh, regime officials, no, here in the U.S., complaining, well, now, we have to be careful if we just turn our backs on Afghanistan. If, if we don't uh, continue, what do they call it, our partnership. You know, it's the same kind of partnership you have when uh, when a mugger sticks a gun in your ribs and and uh, demands, give me your money, you know, in a back alley. Well, we're kind of partners, you and me. You provide the resources that I need and I provide the motivation you need to provide me with those resources. It doesn't count as a partnership if it's not voluntary. 
And by the way, overthrowing one regime so you can put your own puppet in doesn't exactly make it right either. So bring the troops home. They never should have been there in the first place. It would be nice to see some of the people who have have pushed for this over the years. Maybe have a slice of humble pie. Maybe at least revisit uh, whether or not they, they accomplished anything good. Well, they avoided harm, so I guess all's well that ends well. Don't buy the Big Whopper. I'll have a link to Hornberger's article in the show notes. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've really been concerned for the last couple of days that, uh, that I'm kind of on a complaining jag. And if that's the case, can I just apologize? Uh, my goal is not to bring you down, nor is it just to Oh, good, you made it. Pull up a chair and I'll vent my spleen for you. I... Uh, I've had some stuff that's uh, that's kind of been weighing on me, and so I'm I, I feel a little bit out of sorts. And if that comes across as boy, he is really complaining today, um, it's it's only because I, I I seem to be taking things kind of seriously. I promise I'll be back to my frivolous, fun-loving self in short order. But in the meantime, I want to talk about something that I've been observing uh, for for a bit, and that is the use of the word sedition. Had a, uh, a particularly uh, nasty activist a few years ago who used to dog ranchers like Cliven Bundy and Lavoy Finicum, among others. And every meeting that he went to where they talked about how can we assert our rights in the face of a government bureaucracy that is doing everything it can to put us out of business. His answer was always, there will be blood. You are guilty of sedition. In fact, one time he made such a, a fool of himself in trying to insert himself into a meeting that uh, they, they actually had to dismiss the meeting. The police were called because he, he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't let it go. They dismissed the meeting. Everybody left the meeting room. And then the police officer stood at the door and said, all those who have been invited may now enter the room and asked each person on their way in. Were you invited? Were you invited? When they got to our little activist Guess who wasn't invited? Guess who wasn't admitted to the meeting? And uh, boy, the cries of sedition began anew. Well, I'm seeing those same kinds of accusations being posed about not uh, ranchers who are bucking the BLM over range issues or uh, being you know put out of business. Instead, I'm starting to see this uh, being applied to um, anyone who questions what the dominant narrative is. And it could be politically. It could be along health lines. I mean, frankly, there are people who look at uh, the the non-masked or the, the people who refuse to abide by various lockdown orders as if they're being seditious. And you got to understand that's a pretty that's a very serious accusation. I believe sedition is one of those things that carries a death penalty. I found an article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This was written by Joaquin Book. Is opposing lockdowns seditious? You know, if somebody had asked, asked us this question 15 months ago, we would have said, what? Shut up. Take your medicine and stop 
you know, reading into things. Nowadays, though, it's a little more tricky to answer, isn't it? In fact, I would wager a lot of us would say, I, I don't know. Depends on how whoever's in power, you know, is feeling today. Well, King Book says the pandemic has revealed and re-exposed many fault lines in our societies. On the topic of government power, on lopsided risk assessments, on the religious awakening of secular society, on whether strangers are a source of inspiration and cooperation or a lethal threat, and on science and science communication. Now, he says many things were broken before we doubled down with heavy government powers on what we may or may not do. The education system at many levels, climate activists overdoing it, climate deniers speaking untruths, the woke invasion and its obsession with race and gender, the nativist backlash and its obsession with race and culture, cosmopolitans and immigrants, nationalists and xenophobes, a heavy national debt, a bloated federal government, an activist central bank, health care costs running berserk, overdoses and deaths of despair. You get the picture. Plenty of things to disagree about. What matters is that even before the pandemic, many of the disagreements about what we should do about these issues, if anything at all, took on quasi-religious status. None of these were helped by taking away the things that most people cherish and live for. Our freedoms to move about or, you know, live our lives as we see fit. Well, he says we're paying for it dearly and will for a long time to come. By speaking up against the lockdowns, government overreach, mask mandates, and other topics that became both controversial and inflammatory, the American Institute for Economic Research made ourselves a target of a certain kind of outrage. Now, this is Joaquin Book writing. He says, all public outlets and individual journalists know the type much too well. Here's an extract from a fan email we recently received and much too vulgar to print in its entirety. Quote, all Republicans are seditious traitors to America and should be ostracized from polite society. Oh, well, that's not so bad. I hope you get all the curb stomping and exile that you so desperately deserve. Okay, that's getting worse. Our country would be better off. Eat manure. Wow. Somebody's a recent Dale Carnegie graduate, right? Let's call our foul-mouthed correspondent Mr. C for combative calamity, perhaps. Well, King Book says, I bring up Mr. C only for the surprising lessons about peaceful coexistence and a potential future that his email reveals. Even in our darkest hour, we may find some light. He says, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche pronounced God dead in the late 19th century, a prediction the consequences of which we paid for with millions of lives in the 20th. Replacing an impeccable God with an impeccable nation state has an unfortunate tendency to do that. Beginning in the 2010s, a coddled generation raised under the illusion they were to inherit the earth in direct proportion to their snowflakey uniqueness, the misplaced religious tendencies of over a century ago made a shopping comeback, shocking comeback. rather. When justifying actions towards others on the basis of religious convictions, you place the Almighty Himself on one side of the equality or infinity, or eternal suffering or more modern cosmic but equally unprovable injustices, climate change, patriarchy, privilege, etc. Thus, it doesn't matter much which morals and values, cost or benefits your opponents may advance on the other side. They're still going to pale in comparison to the infinity you've placed on the first side. This is how we get genocides, religious persecutions, tyranny, and all other horrific acts of mankind in pursuit of your single-minded goal. Anything and anyone is disposable. 
Now, fortunately, almost nothing is like that, not even religious teaching itself. Christianity teaches to forgive sinners, not pretending that nobody ever sins. Many past societies, even deeply religious such, were tolerant to outsiders and accepting towards other faiths. Science, properly understood, is most certainly not like that. Advancing as it does, step by step, by harsh criticism, objective evidence, debate, and counter-arguments. He says, Mr. C's letter boils of anger, eloquent and deliberated anger. It's not a letter written in the heat of the moment. Though the content is terrible and disturbing, few writers get his imagery this right on the first try. What strikes me is how patently displaced the anger is from its source. Somewhere in his lockdown-deprived life, he projected a massive enemy, identified it in something one of our many great authors wrote, and unleashed the full judgment of the Almighty himself. Now, Joaquin Book says, I'm not a social or political historian of the 20th century, but somehow I don't believe political leanings were all-encompassing then as they seem to be now. Friendships end over who sits in the White House. Romances are cold if one's partner is found to deviate from received wisdom. Job applications are routinely scrapped if the opponent ever said or did anything now considered controversial. Workplaces rebel over what one of their many clients may or may not have said elsewhere. Even who makes a wedding cake is important enough to dispute of a dispute rather to raise to the Supreme Court in a cosmic battle over the ideas other people may have in their heads. Oh, that's so beautifully put. When people can no longer stand one another, a zeitgeist that Mr. C has so profoundly captured by saying seditious traitors, ostracized, few options for reconciliation remain. There's no way to negotiate with Mr. C to establish common ground or even reach a political consensus. There's no more voice to put the issue in Albert Hirschman's words, only exit. And while King Book says this, I explored in my February piece that called for a century of liberty. Quote, a foundational value at the core of a free society is not only free speech, freedom of religion and freedom of movement. It is also property rights, which is an extension of the broader principle of leaving people alone. You do you and I do me. My consumption choices or the choices I do with regards to the people with whom I surround myself are not yours to meddle with. The basic idea is to each his own. He says the most controversial and yet objectionable demand that liberty-minded people ever made was to leave others in peace. I can do my thing over here, you can do yours over there, and thus we don't have to fight over every single thing. If I deeply hate what you believe and you profoundly loathe what I stand for... Isn't the best thing for both of us and everyone else in the vicinity to have us go our separate ways? But for the totalitarians and others who place the infinite values of the Almighty on one side of the societal struggle, allowing others to live their lives in peace is never an option. In this regard, Mr. C is only an extreme interpretation of what rests dormant in every government official of every political office holder, and that is the control over other people's lives. I think he's on to something here. We'll come back to this just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, we are talking about uh, sedition. As, uh, as people who oppose lockdowns, are they guilty of sedition? Because it turns out that's a pretty easy thing to get yourself accused of these days. I mean, dangerous language, but wow, there it is. This piece from Joaquin Book just asks the question, is opposing lockdowns seditious? He says for the, for the totalitarian and, and uh, the totalitarians rather and people who place the infinite values of the almighty on one side of the societal struggle, allowing other people to live their lives in peace is never an option. And it sure feels that way, right? I mean, you can mind your own business. It doesn't matter. The woke will seek you out. They will punish you. They will find some way to make a scene to try to bend you to their will. And in response to this, Joaquin Book says, you know, the letter writer, Mr. C, is just an extreme interpretation of what rests dormant in every government official, every political office holder, and that is the control over other people's lives. Now, here's the kicker. You and I, we really don't need to concern ourselves with, you know, trying to jump in and fix their control issues. But we can definitely fix our own and resist that urge to try to control everybody. Part of it is going to be learning how to ignore those who want to control you. He says, maybe, just maybe, it's time for these United States to again become plural. The separate, independent entities they once were. Secession was an option that the founding fathers understood well. A feasible avenue to opt out from a tyrannical government that tried to shove certain ideas, rules, and behavior down its rebellious, the, its subjects' rebellious throats. So instead of having the red shirters and blue shirters or climate activists and deniers, nationalists or open border types, lockdowners and idiots, having it out in every aspect of integrated life in the office, at the supermarket, on the town square, in the football stadium, even over what they voluntarily read on the Internet and what the woke employees of the tech firms allow others to see, he says, perhaps we can just, you know, leave each other alone. By the way, he says, if this makes me a seditious traitor to Mr. C, I'll wear that uh, accusation as a badge of honor. I mean, the more I watch things unfold, the more I'm becoming convinced that uh, the answer in part, and this is not just to, you know, preventing them from getting their control, but uh, just to, to living your life and finding happiness and finding purpose. You've got to become an unplayable piece on the chessboard. And that can be tough because it's still going to leave you at risk of being criticized or perhaps maligned unfairly. I think it's worth it, though. And it's something I'm trying to work out for myself day to day. And I think we can draw others in with us if we set the right example. And, and I, I apologize for how terribly I do this at times because I, I really do believe more anger more of uh, being certain of who I'm against is, is not the answer. I definitely want to touch people's hearts in such a way that they see the value of personal liberty, that they recognize just how precious and important that quality of personal conscience is. 
that they understand and they respect the power of private property and the free market to solve solutions, to lift people. But I'm not going to try to force them or intimidate them or shame them into feeling that way. I want to just kind of segue from this into the concept of what happens when we let other people live rent free in our heads. I mean, there's no shortage of outrage, right? You can find outrage over anything. What was it the other day? A police chief in a place where a riot had just occurred was talking about the riot and the reporters went all woke. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't say that. It was not a riot. Pretty tough to uh, communicate when when every word you speak is subject to that kind of scrutiny. And you have to wonder, what is it that drives so much of their outrage? I think part of it is, um, at least for some people, it's allowing certain public figures to live rent free in their heads. Donald Trump was an excellent example of a public figure who was adored by some, tolerated by many, and absolutely despised by a good portion of the population because they just couldn't quit him. They couldn't quit thinking about him. And that kind of frequency and intensity of high drama has been on the rise. Well, actually, even since before Trump came on the scene. But we saw a real peak in the the days and weeks right after he was first elected. It wasn't so many years ago I shared a, a photo on social media of former president bill clinton openly ogling a young woman as she performed at another celebrity's funeral i believe it was aretha franklin's funeral and uh shoot what was her name yeah i can't remember doesn't matter bill was sitting back there behind her and the look on his face was just all right (laughs) i can see everything from here i mean and it's so bad that at one point you see um jesse jackson leaning over to him and it really it looks for all the world like he's saying yeah bill you you realize people can see us right We're, we're in public and i had no political goal in sharing that image i shared it on facebook and i thought i just thought it was funny From the standpoint of, well, I guess a leopard can't change his spots. Bill's been known to be, you know, the guy who cats around it uh, a lot. Most of the people who reacted to the photo had a really good laugh at the the more base side of human nature at work. But I had a couple of friends who had a full on freak out and they were trying to demand why isn't the current president being denounced for his sexual improprieties? And, And when other people responded saying, hey. Lighten up and leave your political baggage at the curb. No, they doubled down instead. And that's when angry memes started to appear. The name calling, you know, came up and virtue signaling the questioning of one another's parentage. Yeah, it got pretty ugly. And before the dust finally settled, they were throwing grade point averages around like gang signs. Ultimatums were being issued. You either block these people or we are done forever as friends. That was directed at me. Now, imagine if we could get worked up like that over something that actually mattered. I mean, you know, we we see the same kind of outrage, not just with political figures, but look at uh, woke America. I look, I know a lot of people right now who are very adamant. I will never drink another Coke product in my life. And I say, good for you. Good for you for taking your, you know, what you believe and putting it into action. Remember when uh, uh, Colin uh, Kaepernick was was protesting. Remember how Nike kind of milked that into, uh, I think, a fairly nice windfall. But boy, it made people angry. 
And, and I use that example just to point out it's not just the people on the left who are so obsessed with other people or other public figures. We see it on the right as well. The problem is people who re- are reacting with such passionate intensity all have something in common. They're allowing these public figures to live rent free in their heads. And when I've spent time with these friends who are so easily angered, one thing I've noticed is how their focus always seems to be on the individual they despise. It's what they constantly talk about. The TV shows, the media content they consume only feeds and confirms their obsessive hostility toward people with whom they've never personally interacted before in their life. Now, does that sound like a healthy way to live your life? I mean, it's one thing to find annoyance or disagreement in another person or an idea. But when you get to the point where you're preoccupied with someone to where your only thought is to find ways to tear them down at every opportunity, that seems a little pathological. And this kind of thinking is manifest in a number of ways, and it's not limited to just one corner of the political spectrum. You know, it's, it's the incredible infantile display of narcissism on college campuses when protesters try to interrupt or shout down invited guest speakers. It can take the form of anonymous trolling on the Internet where individuals who lack the conviction to sign their names to their words still demand that you will take me seriously. Sometimes it's gloating publicly over another person's misfortune or mistakes. Sometimes it takes the form of genuine hate mail. That's a tangible receipt for living rent-free in another person's mind. The bigger question is whether that kind of drama changes the world in any way for the better. I mean, if we find ourselves engaging in that kind of obsessive behavior, maybe we should try using our moral energy a little more wisely. I don't know who wrote it, but this still rings true to me. People with purpose, goals, and visions have no time for drama. They invest their energy and creativity and focus on living a positive, a positive life. Maybe another way of putting it is what's in your heart is more important than who's living rent-free in your head. And if you find yourself being defined by who or what you're against, well, maybe you're missing the opportunity to stand for something worthwhile. No accusation there. I'm just saying there might be a better way. Maybe we should take a look at that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.